Hi, everyone. I'm Laura Clinton, and welcome to KindredCast, where we shine a light on the people and ideas shaping our future. KindredCast is a production of Kindred Media, powered by LionTree. Today, we're proud to present a special episode of Kinsights with LionTree Managing Director Yuri Brodsky. Yuri was born in Kiev, Ukraine, and immigrated to the United States in 1989, before the fall of the Soviet Union. As we approach the one-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, Yuri shares his insights on the history of this conflict and where it could go from here, his perspective on the West's response to the invasion, and the global implications for business and politics. Yuri, thank you for being here with us today. Thank you, Laura. Great to be here. I'd like to start with your perspectives on growing up in Ukraine when it was still part of the Soviet Union and how that's changed over the years in the wake of the fall of the Soviet Union. Yeah, so I guess the first perspective is certainly growing up in Kiev, but I think it's true in Europe in general compared to how history is taught in America. It feels very real and very live and very active. It's not something you take in seventh or ninth grade for six months and it goes away. It's something that's living and breathing on a daily basis which I do think as we get into it, certainly impacts the current situation, which most people in America don't necessarily understand. But growing up, it was one country, it was Soviet Union. I grew up in Kiev. Kiev at that time was primarily Russian-speaking city, but growing up in school, I learned both Russian and Ukrainian language and Ukrainian history. I'm fluent in Russian. I speak Ukrainian to a degree. Large part of the education was focused on history of Russia, history of the Soviet Union, very little about Ukrainian history, very little about Ukrainian nationalism, if you will. And I think that's the same as the case of most of the other republics, if you will, of the Soviet Union. It was all subjugated, sort of the communist theory, but also to the theory and history of Russia, which all started to change when the Soviet Union fell apart in the early 90s and when Ukraine became an independent state. And for the last 25, 30 years, Ukrainian language, Ukrainian history, Ukrainian culture, Ukrainian nationalism has come into play more and more. And I think this is all reflective of kind of how Russia feels about itself and its own history. There's somebody, I forget who it was, said, Russia cannot be a great empire without Ukraine. And Russians continue to think of themselves as imperial in design and nature. So that's the context for it. Growing up, how did you identify yourself? Soviet. Identified definitely as Soviet. Definitely not Russian, but definitely Soviet. I was fluent in Russian growing up, speaking Russian, fluent in Russian, but I also spoke Ukrainian. And how was the conversation around Russia in school, socially, if people were speaking Ukrainian? Was that a thing? Were people encouraged really to speak Russian primarily then? And I know I've heard a lot in my studies by way of background. I studied Russian theater fairly extensively in school. And we were taught about these jump rope rhymes that students would do, talking about Granddaddy Lenin and this idea that he was this father figure and somebody that was there to take care of this empire. Ukrainian, for all intents and purposes, was a second language. Russian was the primary language in schools and life in general. And Ukrainian was a secondary language that was, quite frankly, looked down upon by the Soviet elites. So how did your perspective of your own identity and background change when the Soviet Union dissolved? I mean, obviously I was young when I left, but I grew up in a country that doesn't exist anymore. That's the simple perspective. So back then it was one country. Think about it like you were born in Texas and America doesn't exist. 
Did you consider yourself Texan or American? So that's to a large degree. But certainly I remember very fondly growing up and I love the city of Kiev very much. And I consider myself currently Ukrainian, but I never consider myself Russian. That's really interesting context, Yuri. Thank you for sharing that with us. And of course, a lot's happened between now and then, but fast forwarding to the present. Can you give us your take on the history of what has led us to the current conflict in Ukraine? So the history of the current conflict is, we can go back pretty far, but should probably start with the fall of the Soviet Union. Russia always seek to dominate its neighbors to the largest extent possible. There are 15 republics of the Soviet Union, so that is what Russia has considered its near abroad. And point of the fall of the Soviet Union, the new formation was called Commonwealth of Independent States, which is nothing but just a name for Russia to keep its republics close. Some republics broke away further, and some of them joined NATO, which is Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia. Others stayed very, very close to Russia, relying on Russia economically, like the Central Asian republics. Other republics have become directly dependent on Russia for everything, like Belarus. And then there is Ukraine, which is its own and the largest and the richest and the most independent of those republics. And Russia could never let go. So they try to influence politics, they try to influence culture, they try to influence society try to influence business of Ukraine to keep it as close to Russia as possible. But the problem for them is that Ukraine and people of Ukraine truly and really consider themselves part of the European Union and European as opposed to Russian. And so that tug, if you will, has been increasing over the last decade. Even as going back as far as you know, 10 years ago, Ukraine was roughly split more than 50-50, but 50% in favor of Europe and 50% in favor of closer to Russian ties. And I think if there was a softer hand played by Russia, the history may have been played out differently. But fundamentally, Putin has been a power for 20 years, just couldn't allow Ukraine to be free, democratic, and European because that's a threat directly to his rule in Russia. What really precipitated specifically this conflict is when there was a democratic coup replacing the corrupt government in, in 2014 that was pro-Russian and it wanted to keep Ukraine out of the European Union. So when that government fell, if you remember, that was during the time of the Winter Olympics in Sochi, actually. Putin waited for the games to be over and within a couple of weeks took over Crimea and then started uprisings, if you will, seeded with fake news and fake propaganda and fake military in eastern Ukraine. So 2014 was the start of the conflict. That's when Russia took over Crimea. And that's when Russia started taking off part of the Donbass and the east regions. That's when the war between Russia and Ukraine really started. So when the question is we're approaching one-year anniversary, yes, from perspective of America, it's a one-year anniversary. From the perspective of people living in Ukraine, it's been going on for a long, long time. It's really Russian invasion of Ukraine, not, not a Ukrainian war, not a Russian war. It's a Russian invasion of Ukraine that started with Crimea and started with the Donbass. It was fought more or less in a standstill between 2014 and 2022. Ukraine started leaning more and more westward. There were some conversations, although probably never would have materialized, but Ukraine joining NATO, certainly a strong desire to join European Union. I think it's become clearer to Putin, unless he does something stronger, Ukraine will continue to drift further away from Russia. He couldn't let that happen. He was isolated for two years of COVID, clearly got terrible advice. So he decided with a full-scale invasion, truly calling it special military operation because he believed, and I think his people told him, because he was so isolated, the war will be over in three days. So he prepared everything for a three-day war, and he called it a special military operation. He completely underestimated, misunderstood everything around Ukraine, which happens with totalitarian regimes after a meaningful amount of 
times in power, they lose touch with reality. So he lost touch with reality. He believed his own nonsense and he started the current operation. And it's just quite simple. It's a colonial war by Russia of acquisition of territory in Ukraine, something we have not seen in Europe for a long, long time. And that's interesting because I do think that there was a misperception on our side of the world that this invasion would be over fairly quickly. And that's not the case. As you've pointed out, it isn't quite so much a one-year anniversary, but it is to us Americans. How do you think the conversation has evolved? And what do you think is really being misunderstood by Europeans and by Americans about this conflict? There was clearly, definitively a view from the highest levels that the war will be over quickly because the Russian military is the second most powerful military in the world and because there is a huge chunk of Ukrainian population that is pro-Russian and Russia is just too strong not to conquer Ukraine uh, quickly. I think there were some early momentous decisions by Ukrainian government that have swung the tide of the war very quickly, more importantly from the Western support, and that allowed Ukraine to win back a lot of the territory that Russia conquered in the early days, because there's a lot of positive things on the Ukraine side, the will to fight, the support of the people, the strong leadership by the government, the strong generals, and they're fighting a corrupt KGB army, effectively, of convicts and people who get paid to fight. And the key ingredient for Ukraine where it was missing is support from the West. And because of the early moral success of the Ukrainian government and the people, the support from the West came, and that allowed Ukraine to sustain the war for the first year. I think there's no doubt if Ukraine had all the right Western equipment, they could win and drive the Russia out much quicker. But obviously, U.S. and Europe has to balance between full-out support and defeat of Russia versus the risk of escalation. And that's what's been tugging on it a little bit for the last 12 months, is on one hand, Ukraine could win quicker if it had quicker support. And on the other hand, it's difficult to do for the West. Putin is clearly not going to just leave. So that's not a path. Ukraine is not going to surrender. That's not a path. So the key ingredient is, is the Western military support. As long as that continues, the fight will continue. If it doesn't continue, then things will change on the ground. Interesting. And given this reality, what do you think is really driving Putin now? So we mentioned, I think we talked about earlier, how history is taught. You know, everybody is keenly aware, much more aware certainly than the West about the history. He grew up at the heyday of the Soviet Union. He witnessed the fall of the Soviet Empire. He remembers, they all remember, the elite remember the Russian Empire. Part of it is simply restoration, preservation, enhancement of Russia's great powers. Something we don't really understand in the West, but it's important in the history of Europe, obviously, and important in the history of Russia. So he is looking at history, and he is looking at the three rulers who transformed Russia in history, and he wants to be on their level. One was Peter the Great, who opened the window to the West and founded St. Petersburg. Another was Catherine the Great, which effectively conquered Crimea, which is what he equates himself to. So he wants to be remembered truly. And it's, again, very hard for us sitting in the U.S. and liberal Western democracy. He wants to conquer territory, something we study in history books, but it's actually happening because if he conquers territory, he will be on par with those great two leaders of Russia. And the other is the guy who's not widely familiar. I haven't seen his name mentioned much around American mainstream media is Alexander Dugin, who is effectively a neo-Nazi Russian thinker, if you will, whose books and thesis right at the fall of the Soviet Union are behind the Russian nationalist leadership right now. And a lot of the things that are happening, a lot of the anti-Western rhetoric, which, by the way, is ignored. <laughs> Russia thinks they're not just at war with Ukraine. They're at war with the West and the Western culture. That group of people and that ideology thinks of Russia as not democratic country, orthodox, highly religious country, 
anti-human rights country and more of an Asian country as opposed to European country in the government design. So anti-European, anti-Western, anti-liberal, combined with the quest for history is what's driving Putin. And the people around him, by the way, we should not just say it's Putin. Yes, he's the dictator of Russia, but I think there is quite broad support around people around him for this and generally Russian population. Probably not unanimous support, but quite broad support. Touching on the reign of Catherine the Great, she did conquer a lot of territory, and then there was an Enlightenment era, a cultural renaissance in Russia at the time, followed by surf uprisings and more chaos. But touching on that from today's perspective, what do you think Putin wants to happen culturally? And how would you describe maybe some of the messaging that you may have seen that he's giving out to people to get them on his side? Yeah, they are playing in the Russian media against what we think of Western liberal culture. Like basically the freedoms that the U.S. has seen being put in place over the last 50 years, he views as a negative to human civilization. More or less, he wants to reverse things like anti-gay people or anti... It's not a pro-culture now. It's a culture of reversing the trends and reversing the norms and going back to what it was like in the 18th century. Total anti-wokeness. Anti-wokeness is a much better way to say it deep anti-wokeness, which, by the way, is the reason why there are some people on far American right, as we've seen on some television channels, are broadly supportive of him, and he plays to that audience. No doubt he plays to the far right and to far left to the extent, but certainly to the far right audience with an extreme anti-wokeness message that he wants to bring Russia to, and he thinks West is in decline because of it. It's interesting because generally communism is an ideology in line with leftist belief, whereas this very conservative cultural view is tied in with the alt-right. How do those coexist in today's Russia? Yeah, so there is no pro-communist sen sentiment as days in the past. Nobody's pro-communist sentiment in Russia anymore, except for a very small minority. The way to describe his ideology is akin to Nazi Germany, really. It's much closer to fascism, total control, of all forms of media by the state, combined with a capitalism structure, but combined with deep anti-liberal cultural feel. CNN and others have reported, but I think the general population in America doesn't understand how closely what the Russians are doing in Ukraine to a degree is what the Nazis doing in Eastern Europe, not to the same scale, but with the same kind of tone. And that is just not appreciated and I think not understood for 50 years, the Cold War was against about ideologies. People here in America and the West right now feel less it's about ideology, but more about territory control, which it is for Putin, but it's more than that. It's also about ideology. And we are not quite there yet, but that's the fight in addition to the territory. So how important is public approval for Putin? Russia, first of all, is a KGB state. That's the one way to think about it. It's run by KGB, which Putin is one. The simplest way from finance terms, Russia is a controlled company. And Putin is the super voting shareholder. The other shareholders, which are Russian citizens and pretty much everybody else, have no power, no say, no vote, no influence over the direction. So control shareholder, as we've seen in tech and media, can make decisions that align with the interests of the other parties, or they may not. So he doesn't care is the short answer. He doesn't care really as long as him and people closest to him are benefiting the most from this war, which he is. So he's got extremely tight control over the media. He's got extremely tight control over the press. It's just not something that's going to impact him. He will seek positive approval when he wins, but he's not afraid of the negative publicity. So he's not impacted by this short answer. 
What role has the media played, including platforms like Twitter and the U.S. government-funded Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, which has been made available to people in Ukraine and Russia? With media in general, unless you really know what you're looking for, it's difficult to find truth from fiction in most forms of media. When the war first started, obviously wall-to-wall coverage across all major forms of media, like everything, media lost interest pretty quickly. Broader media, traditional media reports in the news once in a while. So that's where secondary sources like Twitter and stuff are quite helpful to follow. I mean, Twitter has inherent bias both ways, but it is the best platform to actually find real information about the war. You just have to know what you're doing because if you get on the wrong track, there's a lot of propaganda out there that you have to figure out what's the truth and what's fiction. Most people are not really able to do that. But there's a ton, a ton of amazing information about Twitter. And I followed it pretty closely actually throughout the war. You got to find your news sources, but they've been consistently ahead of major media sources by sometimes 24 to 72 hours of actual developments on the ground. So it's quite positive if you could figure out how to cut the noise, which is quite difficult to do. So how do you do that for yourself? Actually, the best way to do it is to compare both pro-Russian, pro-Ukrainian, pro-Western sources. And if everybody agrees on the same thing, that's probably the truth. And that's happened in a few situations. Rather situations, you got to really be able to discount propaganda from the truth. There's a phrase that feels maybe inappropriate in this setting, but it's if 10 Russians in a bar say you're drunk, then you're drunk. The opposite is actually completely true. Never believe anything until Russia denies it. That's the right way to say it. If Russia has denied it, it must have happened. That's the way to think about it. On the other hand, if Russia is saying it's true, it's unlikely to be true. So that's your equivalent of the current phrase. And it's actually quite amazing because... The beauty of it, even reputable Western media, like Reuters, can pick up a story from Russia and most people just see the headline. And that's an effect of Russian propaganda. People don't read the article, they just see the headlines. And those headlines can be very reactionary. It could be very reactionary. It could be just parroting what Russian media says. And the article may be correct and cited, but people don't move past it. So it's quite effective, actually. Russian propaganda is everywhere and quite effective. How do you see that playing out here in the States? Which part of it? the propaganda aspect of it, especially we do have an election coming up next year, the media conversation around this war and around Western support, how do you think that's changed? And what do you think is really appropriate at this point? Oh, everything's political. So people will say what they want for their own political gains. It was completely different technology time. And obviously we were not around during the Cold War. It seems like, like compare this with China, both left and right. And every media is aligned on the approach to China, just the degrees. Yet in Russia, there's still not that alignment and there needs to be because people just need to understand what's actually happening here. What's actually happening here from the other side is they think they're at war with the West. They think they're at war with America. There's news channels that talk about bombing Washington on a daily basis or Germany or London. They talk badly about our culture and laws. And so there needs to be understanding and alignment from all politicians that this is not a political issue. Just like China is no longer a political issue, it's just the degree to which you have to address it. So this is not a political issue. It's just the degree. Do you want to go faster or do you want to go slow? <laughs> it's the only question. There's no answer which we don't go at all. So where do we go from here? What are our potential outcomes? So I guess nobody knows, first of all. Second of all, the main driver, in my opinion, of the potential outcome, there's several parties. There's Putin in Russia, which is not stopping unless some internal event happens, which I have no idea how or when it will happen. There is Ukraine, which is not stopping pretty much in any circumstances. And then there is the Western support, which is probably the most questionable in that equation because it's a lot of different countries to form a coalition, have different objectives. 
And that is the biggest volatile part of the equation. That's what Putin is playing for, time for that support to decline and to be in, in an advantageous position when that support starts declining to get at least most of what he wants and then start at a different time because he's not stopping. So the main determinant of this is Western support. There's a lot of noise about how U.S. is spending a lot of money, Europe is not doing its part. It's all nonsense. U.S. spending $70 billion so far. That's 10% of military budget. Now, I don't know why the budget is $700 billion, but that's a different question. So 10%. That's like the safest insurance money you would ever spend on foreign policy. The safest. And Europe not doing its part is also nonsense because a lot of refugees are in Germany and France and Italy. So there's massive financial support maybe not as much military support. It just has to continue. So people need to get off the fact that it's spending too much money, and this is like the best deal you can get. We're buying defense for the next 100 years, 50 years, at a massive discount. And if that continues, I don't see a near-term end. The outcome which, quote, Russia wins is a disaster strategically for America in our lifetime. So as long as people understand it, we can't let that happen. The Ukraine winning appears unlikely unless something happens inside Russia, which I have no idea how or when it will happen. It may result in Russia falling apart, really, as low as probability as it seems. That's quite dangerous outcome too, just because of nuclear weapons and, and the implications. And then there is another scenario where there's some sort of forced settlement, which nobody's happy with, which just punts the war to another day and another time and another circumstance. Unfortunately, I think the last one is maybe the most likely. But it's temporary. World War II was a continuation of World War I, just 30 years later. So this current situation is eight years in the making from Donbass. Even if we come to some sort of an agreement, as long as it's not a definitive victory, it's just punting an issue to another day. I think that's the most likely set of outcomes. But if Ukraine somehow wins and Russia becomes liberal and democratic, that's a massive win and massively game-changing for the history of the world. Why do you think that people are so conflicted about supporting Ukraine, especially as we head into next year being an election year? There will be, I'm sure, a lot of conversation around support of Ukraine. How do you think that both sides will represent this issue? And what do you think will be the determining factors for the American populace? And what do you think they really need to understand? I think just on the Republican side, there's going to be two camps. Obviously, both are going to be critical of what the administration is doing. Part of the camp will be you have not gone far enough, you have been too slow, you have been reactive and need to go bigger. By the way, I agree with that statement. I don't know if that's a dominant view of the Republican Party, but there will definitely be a view. And there will be another view, maybe a minority, but louder minority, and maybe ultimately the winning candidate, which will say, we got to stop the fighting. We got to stop supporting Ukraine. We got to bring peace. We got to come settlement ASAP because it's better for everyone. And I'm the only person who can bring the settlement, which, like I said, it's a huge mistake because any settlement is a win for Russia. And that wing of the Republican Party does not understand it. And then on the Democratic side, obviously, they're more or less united about continued support for Ukraine. But the key question is, and I don't really know the answer is, what is actually the strategy to win? Because right now it's a good strategy of not to lose, which means it will continue or it will result in not satisfactory stalemate. But the strategy to win is unclear. And as long as it's unclear, Putin will keep playing. But one thing is clear, the money is not a big amount of money, but it will be portrayed as a huge amount of money. So that's unfortunate. So given the most recent military provisions in the United States, would you describe this as a bit of an inflection point? How do you see the conversation around Western military and financial support changing? 
I think it's an inflection point. There have been many inflection points over the course of the year with different upgrades and weapons capability that U.S., led by U.S., the West has provided. In my opinion, it's come a little bit behind the curve most of the time. I think it's great, but this is not going to shift the momentum really of the war. And by the way, it's going to be four months before they get it. In my opinion, it's just reactive. It's great that it happened. It's very positive for Ukraine. It's very helpful. But it continues to be sort of, let's do something. And three months from now, we'll see where we are and do something more if we need to. So I think from that perspective, it's a good sign of the continued support of the West. In real terms, it's what I've said a few minutes ago. What is the strategy? Are we trying to help win the war or are we trying to prevent the loss? Preventing the loss, we're doing a very good job. But I think you need to do a lot more and a lot more aggressively, which is just not on the cards right now. That's the reality. So I would say it's marginally helpful, but not dramatically game-changing in the scheme of the next 12 months. And to your point, in that sense, winning the war is preventing a loss. Well, it's just the basic question of the war strategy. Obviously, the U.S. is not fighting. Ukraine is, and Russia is. And Ukraine has stated its war goals. Zelensky has been public with his peace plan, including liberation of all territory, including Crimea, including reparations from Russia and trial of war criminals. You can imagine that's probably not an acceptable outcome to Russia. Russian war aims is effectively taking over the four territories that they annexed in September. There's no end in sight. What are U.S. war aims if we're arming it? What are the West's war aims? That is not stated except Ukraine will decide when and how the war will end. Whether we like it or not, we're the party to this conflict. So we need to be a little more aggressive in stating what the goals are and what we need to do to achieve those goals. If you could describe the global implications that you feel are the most misunderstood by us here in the States, how would you explain that? The global implications are that we now have two different economies, if you will, spheres. Truly the East and the West, kind of like we had in the Cold War, both economically and politically. The East, broadly speaking, is Russia, China, India to a degree. The West is everything else. So decoupling of the global economy which would have happened anyway, was happening to a degree with what's happening in China, but just accelerated by this. That's one thing. And the second thing that's probably misunderstood that regardless of the timeline question you asked me, the implications of that, this is it's like sitting at the end of World War One and thinking what's the most misunderstood impact of the end of World War One? I? I don't know, just the next 50 years are going to work out differently. So we're on a different path from everything, from economic issues, energy issues, global warming. How have you seen this conflict impacting the global economy, the American economy? Of course, there's been sanctions on Russia, but there's also been some pretty crafty stuff happening to avoid those sanctions. Is there a reality in which we just bleed Russia dry and it ends that way fiscally? No. No? There's no reality in which anybody bleeds Russia dry because, first of all, natural resources and a lot of other external relations. I mean, look at other countries' sanctions like Cuba for 60 years. Has sanctions led to anything in terms of change? I'm not saying sanctions are not necessary. They are, but they're not an answer to the problem. They're necessary, but they're not going to solve it. Cuba, look at Iran, has that stopped anything? And Russia is way richer, way more connected, way closer to China. It's necessary. You have to keep it in place. You have to make it more difficult. It's painful for individual oligarchs with boats and houses in Italy. And you got to, I think, U.S. has to take $300 billion that's abroad and spend it from Russia. But I think economically, Russia has the ability to fight this for a long, long time, and the will until something changes to fight it for a long, long time. Obviously, the West has the ability economically, whether it has the will, we'll see. In terms of impact to global economy, obviously, early on, commodity prices rose widely. I think that are now below where the war has started. Europe had the mild winter 
Germany has moved on from dependence on natural gas. So I think there's actually been some long-term positives for the West in terms of reducing reliance on Russia energy from it. But I think the biggest impact is felt in emerging markets and countries like Africa, which are impacted disproportionately by both commodity and food prices. That's a problem. And obviously the uncertainty has reduced growth globally, but the global economy can sustain this for a long time, just at a reduced growth rate and expectations. And then obviously, you know, the suffice it to say, we talked about the West and Russia, but doesn't talk about 3 billion people who are effectively neutral. By the way, there's no benevolent neutrality, but China is effectively neutral, but closer to Russia. India is effectively neutral. Israel is effectively neutral. Latin America is effectively neutral, partly because of the economic reasons, partly because of dependence on Russia from the military perspective, partly for other reasons. So when we're talking about this, we really are talking about U.S. and the West directly versus Russia and maybe Iran and North Korea helping them a bit on the side. So what would definitive action by the United States look like, in your opinion? The game's been played as Ukraine asks for stuff, the meeting's being held, time passes, months go by, then they get the stuff they asked for. And then you start it over again, they ask for more, and we give them more. Just give them everything they want right now. Militarily, give them everything they want right now. Now they want the planes, give them the planes. They want more tanks, give them the tanks. And then commit and publicly state you're going to ramp up production of that stuff behind the scenes. Defense Production Act was invoked during COVID for masks. Invoked Defense Production Act for producing more tanks and ammunition, which, by the way, we're running out of. That will send signal to Russia that U.S. will continue fighting. We will not stop when we run out of this stuff. We will not stop when the next election happens. We will not stop when the budget allocation runs out. Because right now, he's just playing for the next six months, next 12 months, when something changes. If the West is actually clear... Truly, we're saying we're in it for the long term, but if we're actually somehow really committed for the next 10 years, then it's an entirely different ballgame because he cannot wait out 10 years. He can wait out 10 months. And so that's the game right now. Who can outlast? He's betting he can outlast us. So we need to put in place everything to show him that he cannot. All right. Well, thank you so much for sharing your insights with us today. I really appreciate it, Yuri. Thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Kinsights with Yuri Brodsky. For more KindredCast content, please follow us wherever you listen to podcasts. 